no matter how controversial this HBO Max deal is, Warner Brothers, along with Universal's Dynamic Window, they're really the only two studios that we can safely trust to release movies. They've shown at least a willingness to take a risk by releasing these movies when they would really make a fraction of what they would have made in the second half of 2021. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined by wonderful co-hosts Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst over at Box Office Pro. Hey, guys. Hey, Russ. Uh, busy news week last week. I know Sean's been crunching numbers on the uh, updated uh, box office forecast for 2020, 2021. Wow. <laughs> it's like when you uh, when you used to write checks and you would write this, you would write the last year's date on your check for, you know, for two months. And that's a joke for old people, a reference <laughs> for old people. So I started out writing checks right when I was of age to get a bank account. So I kind of get that. <laughs> I still, I still, there's somewhere that up until about five years ago, I don't remember it was some electric bill or something like that just would not accept anything other than a check. But I just know checks is a plot point in catch me if you can, that wonderfully, <laughs> that very delightful Leo DiCaprio uh, Spielberg film. That's probably one of the better Spielberg films for me. I don't know if you guys uh we're big fans of that one. I like that movie. I just watched that maybe a week ago or something. I watched it and was reminded that back in the day, I I did the press junket for that movie and actually got to sit down with the guy that the movie is about, the guy that Leo plays in that movie, who was amazing to talk to. Just a really, as you would expect from seeing that story on screen, the guy's a wonderful storyteller and has astonishing life experiences to share. And he must have written a book. So I'm I'm just assuming that he's that there's a way that you can, you know, read more about him. If you've seen that movie, look into more about Frank Abagnale, amazing guy. And if you haven't seen the movie, catch me if you can. Terrific film. A lot of checks in there. Anyway. There's no good segue to what we're talking about. So as, as you mentioned, a lot of big news last week, and that's pretty much what we're going to discuss this week, is everything that has changed on the 2021 slate and going into 2022. And those changes are many and numerous, and in some cases, mildly distressing, at least. Uh, and some of our listeners may find some of those changes significantly distressing, with which I, I think we all sympathize because... I think we're all ready for things to be a little more stable and and we're just not there yet. But before we begin that discussion, let us bring up a message from our sponsor, QSC, which announces the expansion of the QSYS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with the new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, the QSYS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery from just about anywhere within your cinema complex. Visit qsc.com slash podcast for more information. Uh, that's qsc.com slash podcast. Okay. Sean, how about you kick things off? We're kind of going to, because there's so much here, rather than going down the calendar, we're going to divide this up by studio. And because uh, MGM slash United Artists has delayed No Time to Die, which has been a cornerstone film uh, you know, around which a lot of the slate kind of revolved, 
Sean, let's begin there with the delay to No Time to Die and, and what's going on with MGM. Yeah, you said it best. It's really kind of been the trendsetter, I think, throughout the entire pandemic. It was, I believe, the first. It was one of the two first. first major, to, yeah, the first. I don't first remember major, Trolls. It was that and then Fast 9, I believe. They were very early. Were the first two. Well, tro- Trolls moved up. Right. Trolls moved right. up after I think it was Fast and the Furious 9 moved further into, I think, by a whole year. And then it was Bond that moved by to the end of the year. Yeah, Six months, yeah. And that's that's been their their pattern. I mean, it's been six months, six months, six months. So, you know, there was, there was this hope, I think early last summer that when the date for November was, was still out there for bond that might hold, of course that didn't happen. And then there was this renewed enthusiasm for, okay, Easter weekend, maybe it'll stick. And I I think it was really, it was really pretty clear by the holidays that that was very unlikely to happen because as we've, really come to find out in the last few weeks and it's not our job to discuss politics, but I I think it's hard to deny the fact that within 24 hours of every major media outlet reporting that there had virtually been no vaccine rollout plan. And then this film is officially delayed followed by a slew of others. It really just underscores how much I think Hollywood is waiting on that rollout to become more effective and for audiences to be more comfortable going back out and doing things like going to the movies. So the writing had been on the wall for a while. This was not a shocking move. And I think for it to go back into October probably puts it in a safer position. But as we all know, you know, we'll have to reassess in a few months and hopefully things are a little bit closer to normal by then. And then we also had the Adams Family 2 moving, which to me seemed it actually moved up, correct? Right. Yeah, that moved up one week. So that's a positive. (laughs) If we're looking at the glass half full uh, scenarios here, I think any family movie is probably, or most family movies, I should say, are relatively safe on the slate because we've seen films like The Croods and The War with Grandpa be some of the kind of pillars of the reopening during the pandemic so far. They're not drawing the usual large audiences, but they are proving to be the movies that people are wanting to go out and see because where it's safe and possible to do so parents want to get their kids out of the house. And that's going to be, I think one of those early titles, you know, worst case scenario, if we, if we don't get the summer or at least half of a summer we're hoping for in terms of going to theaters by the fall, there is this general expectation that this is when we can really start things somewhat being backed by to normal, maybe not 100%. But if that's the case, I think this is one of those movies that will be really attractive for for those audiences. Agreed. And now, before we move on to the next studio, I think the other big question that asks, or, or that must be asked, certainly with respect to Bond and what we've seen other studios do, is do you think there's any chance that No Time to Die will have some sort of VOD debut, uh, whether day and date or exclusive, rather than theatrical? I can only go on personal opinion here. And I think we all probably feel a little bit differently. I really see this as one of the few movies that is the safest bet to stick to an exclusive theatrical release. And that's for a few reasons. I think a Bond film, especially given that it is MGM and there's a lot on the line for them with this movie, but for a James Bond, a 55 plus year old franchise that has always been kind of a bastion of the cinema experience. I I think for that to break any windows in a significant way would be a bridge too far in a lot of ways. And sacrilegious even. 
Yeah, <laughs> it would be a little bit like, you know, if end game, if the pandemic had happened two years earlier and Marvel was in the position of putting out the last Avengers movie under those circumstances, it, it would it's something comparable to that or just any other you know veteran iconic franchise. So personally speaking, I think out of all the major films, especially considering we've seen it delayed by big chunks at a time and not just by one or two months, it really shows their commitment to this being the movie that they want and believe people will go back out and see when it's time. I would tend to agree with that. I think that last point is a significant one that they haven't gone to VOD yet and they've delayed it now. And so if they were going to do VOD, they would have done it by this point. And the fact that they're doing another six month theatrical delay tells me that they are remaining committed to theatrical over digital. And that makes sense because if if we're talking about taking an even lesser cut of theatrical by going to digital early, you really have to be in the VOD game as a company. And it's something that MGM, United Artists, isn't. I tend to agree with you guys. This is the to- sort of title that will stick to theatrical. And that's actually leads us into where Paramount is, which is a company that, although it's part of a big media giant, also doesn't have skin in the SVOD or PVOD game uh, as of yet. It's taken a film-by-film approach on what they delay and what they sell to streaming. We, we've seen titles like uh, a comedy like The Lovebirds that went to uh, Netflix fairly on In this crisis, we saw very recently the decision to move Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America, uh, go to Amazon Prime. But they've kept A Quiet Place Part 2 in their theatrical plans all along. Originally scheduled to hit theaters in March of 2020, it's been rescheduled time and time again. Uh, This last time, it was set to come out on April 23rd, 2021 moving the title to September 17th. Guys, how does this uh, shape up? Does this make sense? I know, Sean, on on your end, you were talking about this move probably going to happen knowing that Bond had already moved. Yeah, it seemed like the two were intrinsically tied because you know slated to come out within three weeks of each other in April and intended to lead into summer season. It just seemed inevitable that once Bond was out there, so too would be this movie. And similar to MGM, Paramount is in a position where their slate, particularly on a franchise tentpole level, is not as deep as other studios. So they need to be protective of pretty relatively safe to assume hit movies like this one. And in a way, you know, I hate to say I wouldn't call it an advantage because of the circumstances that this is happening in, but Paramount does have a, a benefit in that they know this movie has already been well-reviewed because it had screened for critics before the pandemic last year, right in advance of its in, in initial release. So that's one uh, that's one thing they can rely on is that when they do put this film out there, they at least have the knowledge that it's already been well-received by at least some aspect of the film community with the hope that that will translate to audiences. The other thing with Paramount, and we're, just, we're not really going to talk about these movies because they were already kind of far out, but... There were two other films that were taken off the schedule at Paramount, which were both animated films and both produced by John Lasseter, formerly of Pixar, Luck and Spellbound, the latter of which is not an Alfred Hitchcock remake. But they're both titles from Skydance Animation. And those going off the schedule to me simply raises a question, which is that Skydance 
as an overall banner, has been one of Paramount's most significant partners. It's essentially to Paramount what Legendary has been to Warner Brothers or briefly Universal. Skydance is also responsible for the Mission Impossible movies and for the upcoming Top Gun sequel. To Sean or Daniel, either of you, does seeing those two Skydance movies come off the schedule give you any concerns about movies like Top Gun and Mission Impossible? It's very hard to talk about Top Gun and Mission Impossible yet, I think, just because then we're really looking at the back half of this year and we're not we're not really seeing any major shift shifts of titles from that point on yet. Uh, it's probably inevitable to happen, if not because of the pandemic directly and, and vaccine rollouts, but because it's just it's filling up so quickly. And, you know, we're now in a position where Best case scenario, October, November, December really look like closer and closer to what a summer release schedule would look like. That's very atypical. October isn't known for having big blockbusters every year. It is possible. We've seen films like The Martian do that. Now Bond will probably be that. But you know, Mission Impossible in November, right after an Eternals film and a Disney film, and then there were several at Dune in October, which is kind of a whole other discussion in itself. But yeah, I, I think Paramount is very – there's no question. They're looking really closely at what to do with Top Gun, I'm sure. That is another film that I think is very safe to stay theatrical. Same for Mission Impossible, if not for any other reason than to make keep Tom Cruise happy. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> so, yeah, beyond that, it's very hard to speculate on, on specifically, I think, the Skydance situation. I think if there's anyone other than Chris Nolan who has the power – to push for theatrical, it's probably Tom Cruise. So uh, it, it seems it, it's if Cruise wants Top Gun and especially Mission Impossible, which is really his baby, to go theatrical, then I think he's among the few people who has the the leverage to uh, exert on Paramount to make that happen. And we have to go through what uh, some of these executives in a, in a position to make these changes are saying publicly. Not many are talking, but there were some very interesting comments that Paramount's head of domestic distribution, Chris Aronson, gave to the Wall Street Journal last week, saying that from his perspective, it's looking like audiences will begin to come back uh, beginning in July. Coincidentally, Top Gun 2 is currently scheduled for July 4th weekend. Right, right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And now, you know, you mentioned Dune. So to quickly hit Warner Brothers, really the big thing is that they pulled Godzilla versus Kong forward from May to the end of March. And given the response that we saw to that trailer debut a couple of days ago, well, a couple of days ago as we're recording this now, that trailer looks kind of like if you took a Fast and the Furious movie and put big monsters in it, which is to say kind of silly and awesome. So maybe that was a good move. In general, it seems like circuits are slow to commit to Warner's 2021 slate overall. It seems like everybody's saying, well, okay, we're going to, we'll commit to stuff through Q2 or through the end of Q1 or something like that. So Sean, what what does that move of, of Godzilla and Kong seem like to you as far as indicators of Warner Brothers' confidence and things overall? I kind of come at this one a, a few different directions, starting with, you know, before these, uh, this slew of release changes last week, when you looked at the May calendar and just presuming most of those titles would come out, that movie looked sandwiched in between movies like Black Widow and Fast 9, because even if those films do still come out in theaters in May, 
we're not going to be back at 100% by May. Not not every market is going to be back. And it's going to be hard for any film to compete in a crowded market, especially for a franchise that, I mean, to be honest, has, has kind of been subject to diminishing returns. Uh, the last film, King of the Monsters, the Godzilla sequel, did fairly well globally. Uh, but domestically, it was kind of a little bit of an underperformer. And, I, you know, I kind of go back to the old rule of sequels pay for the sins of their predecessors. And that was always something that was going to apply to this movie, no matter how awesome and fun it might end up being. I mean, that's just, I think, the reality. But, you know, the other side of this is looking at HBO Max and looking at their strategy for the year, agree or disagree with it. It made competitive sense to move that up because without that, they they kind of have this gap between wonder woman and a handful of other titles later in the year that are kind of their big slate titles. So now they have something for the spring and, you know, looking at it from a, a, a streaming point of view, that'll get them some subscribers in late March. And at the same time, it'll provide content for theaters because especially as the slate is emptied now, that's going to be the big premier title going into spring. So whoever wants to go see it in IMAX or just any theater that's open near them, now that's an option. And to me, it also suggests that Warner Brothers has a 30-day window for Godzilla vs. Kong on HBO Max. So you get it in however many theaters it can be in at the end of March. It's on the service for 30 days. And what this really says to me is that they see an opportunity to do well with it digitally, globally, starting in you know, April or May or whatever it is, and that that's going to be a better performer than holding it for theatrical in, you know, a window when audiences will be slightly more robust. That actually brings to mind, Russ, something that you said offline, where paraphrasing what you were saying, but ironically, it looks like no matter how controversial this HBO Max deal is, Warner Brothers, along with Universal's dynamic window, they're really the only two studios that we can safely trust to release movies for the entire first half of this year. I know it's a, it's a very controversial stance the studios have taken, but they've shown at least a willingness to take a risk by releasing these movies when they would really make a fraction of what they would have made in the second half of 2021. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's and it's odd to me that, well, not odd, but it's interesting that after everything is said and done, you know, that especially over the rest of Q1, the studio that is the big studio that is putting movies into movie theaters is Warner Brothers. And, and we have to commend that, really. They're finding a way to do it during a critical time period. But it's a, it's a really tricky time. I think you also mentioned the hesitancy that we've seen from some of these larger circuits in booking or embracing some of these titles coming not only from, to a lesser extent, Universal, but mostly from the Warner Brothers side. It, it's a sensitive time. I think there's a, a connection here to why we're not seeing that same red carpet, uh, for the lack of a better expression, rolled out to Netflix titles. Uh, and I think it's really down to nobody, not studios, not exhibitors, want to take a decision in February that they're going to regret in November. And I think that's why we're seeing some of these uh, titles from the likes of Paramount and Sony shift over to the latter half of the year. And from the exhibitor's point of view, why they're really taking it on a case-by-case -case basis when it comes to booking a Warner Brothers or a Netflix title in the next coming months. Agreed. 
And since you mentioned nobody as the most awkward segue possible, <laughs> let's talk about universal and focus. Yes, we've seen some shifts from the universal focus side, obviously not as significant as from other studios, but we have that action comedy title, Nobody, that was previously set for February 26th, that is moving to April 2nd, so it's still in that awkward Q1, Q2 phase where there's not that many titles going into the market. We have announcements of titles coming in to the second half of the year, uh, most significantly Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho that was set to hit theaters on April 23rd, that is now going to a theatrical release on October 22nd. And the Tom Hanks vehicle BIOS that was originally scheduled for April 16th, that is now moving to August 13th. Finally, in that list, we've got a Michael Bay action film. At least I'm assuming an action film. I don't think this is a Michael <laughs> Bay romantic comedy called Ambulance that will be added to the schedule for February 18th, 2022, even though that's close to Valentine's Day, so I might eat my words there. It's about a Transformer who falls in love with an ambulance. <laughs> it's an awkward, very endearing story. I don't know. I do think it's it's cool to see Edgar's movie going to a safer theatrical window, especially since you know the guy just guest edited an issue of Premiere magazine that was basically dedicated entirely to the love of the cinematic theatrical experience. So it's nice to see you know that his long relationship with Universal and Focus is paying off in some way in their willingness to shift his new movie back to October and and hopefully give it a good theatrical release. And that moves us into the next studio that we have here on the list. Of course, as we're talking about release calendar shifts, the two the two titles that are still tent poles coming in May. You mentioned F9 from Universal scheduled for May 28th earlier, Sean. We got an email from Disney we weren't sure what we were going to find once we opened it, but no word on a change for Black Widow on May 7th, though there are some changes mostly from the 20th century and searchlight side of the conversation. Right. That that was very uh, that was a tense three seconds between seeing that email and opening that email and what to expect. They you're right, they did focus primarily on on 20th century titles. I think the biggest, probably the most notable, is the King's Man previously dated for March 12th, now going to August 20th, probably, you know, arguably a safer spot. I think that's one of those mid-range movies that they could probably have tried to roll the dice a little bit and still open it in the spring sometime as, as kind of a courtesy to theaters. But it is still a franchise picture, one that they reportedly have hopes of continuing with other sequels down the road. Uh, with Matthew Vaughn talking about that. So it, I think it's very clearly there's something they're trying to protect that's coming over from the 20th century side. Bob's Burgers taken off the calendar completely, which is an interesting move and has ignited, I think, some speculation that maybe it could go to Hulu. But that's, again, pure speculation. It's just not on the calendar right now, pre uh, previously going to be April 9th. And then they had an original animated film, Ron's Gone Wrong, which was April 23rd, now going into October, 20, October 22nd. Again, kind of an, an example that that September-October time frame is really starting to crowd up. So it'll be interesting to, to see what happens there. But, you know, I, I would hope that Disney doesn't have any major uh, announcements to make it at least anytime soon on their 
uh, Marvel titles or any of their other internal titles. But this was, you know, again, the, I think the theme is generally an expected sl- slate of changes. And they, they also had a few other titles that I think had been announced before that. The Night House going to July 16th, The Eyes of Tammy Faye to September 24th, Antlers to October 29th, and Nightmare Alley dated for December 3rd now. And Nightmare Alley is particularly interesting because it's a remake of a, of a noir. It's a remake of a strange noir. It's from Guillermo del Toro. They're putting that in early December, which is prime Oscar movie territory. And of course, Guillermo won Best Picture with The Shape of Water a couple of years ago. So you have to think that maybe Searchlight is hedging the idea of some bets of, of potential awards uh, contention for Nightmare Alley, and that that's why it is given, getting that that pretty plum early December release date. And that leads us into the final studio that we're looking at. Russ, there were also some changes from Sony, including a film that was meant for theatrical release that is now going to Netflix. Yeah, that is the movie formerly known as Connected, which uh, will now be called The Mitchells versus The Machines, which comes from producers Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are known as the guys who can take seemingly unworkable ideas and turn them into astonishingly good movies, such as the big screen remake of 21 Jump Street or the Lego movie or, you know, the animated uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I think everybody thought, oh, maybe this will be cool. And I don't think anybody went into that movie expecting to see one of the best superhero movies ever made and, you know, uh, a future Oscar winner. So that actually, that move to Netflix seems pretty significant because if you talk about producers and filmmakers with clout, Lord and Miller are pretty high on that list at this point. And to see that movie go over to Netflix and even to be rebranded with the title that, that Lord and Miller supposedly wanted for it initially, there was a tweet from one of them that suggested that Connected had been kind of a Sony-mandated title. It can be difficult to tell how deeply the tongue is placed in cheek with some of that stuff. But that's a really interesting change to me, that Sony is, rather than committing to that title with filmmakers that have delivered for Sony before and are potentially going to deliver for Sony again, that's the one thing in the in the uh, the slate that really stands out to me. Beyond that, we have some obvious moves. You know, the Peter Rabbit sequel went from April to June. The live action Cinderella went from February to July. We haven't even seen marketing for that movie yet, so there was no point over the last month where anybody thought that movie was actually going to open. Sony's Morbius, the Jared Leto vampire slash superhero movie, which had already been bounced over to October, is now January twenty twenty two. And then Ghostbusters Afterlife, previously in June, is now going to be closer to Thanksgiving on November 11th, which makes a lot of sense. And then there's the Uncharted video game movie with Tom Holland, aka Spider-Man, which will now debut in February 22, which makes a lot of sense for that movie because that's one that Sony has to be putting a lot of big money bets on. A lot of changes on that. Yeah, there's a lot there. That's a lot. But yeah, I I think Russ needs to go take a a sip of water after reading that monologue uh, from the Sony I know, there's a lot there. I mean, I think really the thing that comes down to Sony for me and Connected and Lord and Miller, who are doing a Spider-Verse sequel for Sony, uh, at least as producers, the big question with Sony is what are they doing with their whole strange Spider-Man spinoff franchise, of which Morbius is a part because supposedly the third Spider-Man movie that Marvel has coming out this year is going to be the last 
active partnership between Marvel and, and Sony on that front, at, at which point Sony is going to have their own strange Spider-Man web of movies happening. And that is a huge franchise potential for Sony. And so uh, it's been interesting to watch how the studio has managed that set of rights over the last decade. And I don't think anybody could even predict how that's going to go for them over the next two years, uh, you know, with or without these schedule changes. It's a huge question mark, but you know, we've seen similar moves from other studios. Look at Warner brothers. We have two jokers, one that existed in a standalone movie that was fairly well received by audiences, if mixed by critics. But then you have another joker from the DCEU talking about Jared Leto that was poorly received by, by both audiences and critics. So I think we're getting to the point where studios are getting comfortable just, for the lack of a better term, milking the superhero cow any way they can. And audiences have proved to be comfortable with what is known as a multiverse. Now, you'd mentioned Lord and Miller before. All those titles that you mentioned when you started talking about Sony, Russ, which was uh, the Lego movie, 21 Jump Street, the Spider-Verse titles, all, all those titles sounded terrible on paper. I mean, they, they sounded like awful, awful movies. I loved all three of them. All three of them have been among my favorite yes. studio movies of the last decade, which just goes to, to show that no matter how questionable these strategies can be, as long as you have the right creative team behind them, and I think we spoke a little bit about that when, when you mentioned the importance of Tom Cruise for Paramount, as long as the right creative team is there, I'll watch another Mission Impossible movie. Those Mission Impossible movies, we've talked about it before. They're great fun. I don't care how many there are. I love them. They still feel fresh. I'll watch 20 of those movies. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a huge risk then as long as Sony gets the right filmmakers, as long as they have the right talent strategy in mind to keep these uh, superhero IPs fresh. The problem then becomes how many superhero movies are we getting against how many movies that don't involve people flying around punching each other are going to hit the market. I think that's my bigger concern. I think those superhero movies will do well, but at the expense of what and where does that leave really the rest of the audience that maybe isn't too interested in just watching superhero movies? Yeah. So Sean, with everything that we've discussed in the last half hour, from your perspective, you know, in 60 seconds or less, where does that leave the recovery schedule as it is now? Nebulous is, I think, the word to, to describe, I think, everything at this point. We're, we're constantly kicking the can down the road. We've been doing that for the last year. But it's very clear, never more than ever, that this is going to come down to the timeline of vaccine distributions and how many shots are getting into arms. And studios are banking on that, as well as New York and L.A. to open. And it, what I think most of these changes this past week say is that there is still a lot of optimism that that will happen in 2021 with how many films are moving into the back half. But is that back half of the year where we're more likely to start seeing that at the same time though, I think there will be this transition period. We still have, we have Godzilla Raya from Disney going streaming in theaters in the spring. And then we still have a number of summer titles on the slate from May and onward. So I, I think there is still a lot of reason to, see an uptick in the long term, but there will be a long recovery period that stretches into the end of the year and probably into early next year. But it really is kind of an indication that we still have a few months to get out of this 
and until we start seeing some significant evolution into the next phase of this recovery. Well, that's not exactly the unbridled optimism I would like to hear, but it is somewhat optimistic. And at this point, I will take pretty much any optimism I can get. So thank you, Sean, for that. And uh, Daniel, thanks for uh, everything today as well. Great to be uh, back on here with you again, Sean and Russ. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it was fun to talk to you guys. And to everyone listening, thank you. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was created by Daniel Luria, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. We will be back next week. And until then, I hope we can all enjoy a slightly calmer movie news cycle. Thanks. Take care. 